Welcome to the CoinGecko Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Young. Each week, we will be interviewing someone from the blockchain industry to learn more about this fast-moving cryptocurrency economy. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The CoinGecko Podcast is produced each week to help you stay ahead of the curve. Show notes can be found at podcast.coingecko.com. I highly encourage you to join our newsletter where we send out top news in the crypto industry every Monday to Friday. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Telegram at CoinGecko. Hey, welcome to the CoinGecko podcast. For today's episode, we have Jack O'Holleran, CEO of Scale Labs. Jack's passion for decentralized systems and blockchain led him to join efforts with Stan to solve the blockchain scalability problem. He is a veteran Silicon Valley technology entrepreneur with deep background in machine learning and AI technologies and blockchain. His resume includes co-founder of Actana, co-founder of Instant Align, and executive positions at Good Technology and Motorola. Welcome to the CoinGecko podcast, Jack. Hey, pleasure to be here, Bobby. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you on the show as well. So I guess to start things off, right, Jack, maybe can you give us a simple explanation of what the scale network is and sort of the relationship with scale labs? Yeah, yeah. So the scale network is a decentralized blockchain network, and it's open source, community-owned and run, just like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And in particular, what it does is it's a network of computers that can create many, many blockchains and actually limitless blockchains. The more and more computers or nodes that join this network, the more and more blockchains that can be created. And the role of Scale Labs was very similar to a lot of companies that help facilitate the growth of these community-owned assets is is we're a core team that uh, had an idea a long time ago around the network and got this started. But now it's uh, there's open source contribution. There's a foundation that helped launch the network that's not associated with Scale Labs. And it's uh, open source community-owned property run by a digital token or cryptocurrency called the Scale Token. So happy to get into more of that later, but that's yeah. the quick, uh, quick intro. Okay, cool. So there's so many interesting opportunities to build in crypto these days, right? So what got you really interested to kind of work on scale and solve the problem that you're working at? Yeah. So we had the idea for scale back in 2017. All right. I had been doing tech startups since 2005. My co-founder, Stan Cladco, who has a PhD in physics, and he was doing research at Stanford a long time ago. He was one of the people who built the Java virtual machine. He actually started working in cryptography in 2000, and he was on the founding team of a cryptography company with Dan Bonet. My first company was called Good Technology that I was a part of and had a lot of deep crypto. Stan actually did our cryptography certification as the US government, like FBI, US Senate, and all the almost every Fortune 500 company used this product. So had deep crypto certs. Um, that was my introduction to crypto. And I had done machine learning startups after that in the SaaS space or B2B enterprise space. And Stan had gone on to do a bunch of other startups and networking and other areas that really both our backgrounds kind of flowed nicely into where the market was in 2017. And I think both of us, our imagination was captured by Ethereum. And we both wanted to go out and build a community-owned asset in terms of an application, like a decentralized exchange or a Web3 company. And what we realized was none of the ideas we had were going to work for until we had something that could help scale our ideas. And both of our backgrounds actually lent themselves better to creating software infrastructure than creating applications. 
And so what happened was we decided, hey, let's go and stand, to be honest, it's just a, and I think really important to say this is a technical visionary. And he had these ideas on how he could scale all these different applications when I met him. And that's really, that was the genesis for Scale Labs. And we said, hey, let's go build middleware. We were calling it middleware, not layer two or scalability network. We were saying, let's build something that sits between Ethereum and an application to help Ethereum work better without losing interoperability with Ethereum. And here's how it will work. Here's what it will do. And then, you know, all this nomenclature and battle over what things called were, should be called started later. <laughs> but that was our kind of venture into doing this. And we really wanted to solve a problem for ourselves and realize we could solve it for a lot of other people. And we realized our backgrounds were very well suited to do that. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's always the case, right? I mean, you realize that your background sort of like helps you to decide what's the best cause because that makes you a perfect expert to solve that problem at hand. So yeah, I guess my next question is, you mentioned it to be a layer two and the middleware and all. So like, I mean, it's probably a bit, would be of a tougher question, but if you may, right? Like there's so many scalability solutions on Ethereum these days, such as Optimism, ZK Rollup, Avalanche, XDAI, Stunkware, and also Ethereum is working on its own, like if 2.0 scaling solution with sharding and so on. Like, how will you categorize all these different scalability solutions and where does scale sit into one of these categories? Hey, I actually, I love this question because it's confusing for people because it's really easy to dive into the tech and not really understand the distillation of these tech attributes. And I'll try to give the distillation for people to understand who aren't developers or cryptography researchers. Okay, so that's my goal with this. And there's a few spectrums I think that are important to understand. One is centralization. And along that spectrum, is it a blockchain or not? And you have one side of the spectrum where you say, hey, we're going to abandon blockchain. We're going to use software to try to validate that things that are happening in the second layer or execution layer are accurate. And, and by the way, I'm not saying any of these techniques are wrong. I'm just helping people understand it. And for many use cases, that may be absolutely all right, where you don't need to KYC AML anybody, okay? And you don't care about like a central authority having control. So that's where you're finding the roll-up solution sit, where it's sophisticated technology, really brilliant people building this tech. But the tech at the end of the day runs on an operator, i.e. a node. And there's techniques being worked on to try to remove that centralization where they kind of switch who the operator is. Instead of having it be one person or company, they're you know, saying, hey, could we come up with a mechanic and a token environment to kind of swap around who's in charge at any given time? Because you could have 50 nodes and 49 of them could be malicious, but if the roll-up operator is not malicious, then everything's accurate, okay? Now, that's kind of against the belief set of the people that say, let's use blockchain. And so you look at all of these new Byzantine fault-tolerant blockchain solutions that are being developed, and many of them are like very far away from being Ethereum, right? If you go look at the Solanas and Nears and Avalanche and all these new age networks that are being built, or even throw in Polkadot and Cosmos, and they're saying, hey, we'll build a bridge for you. <laughs> and what we use is not mathematical proofs, but we're going to use blockchain. Blockchain, from my perspective and my definition, is a symmetrical database where every computer runs the same software. And if the majority of those computers agree, then that's a source of truth. Okay. And there's economic incentives driving that good behavior. All right. And then you kind of find things in the middle here where you look at like side chains that are more fixed, where 
you've got one blockchain. And so you could throw in like the Matic and XDAI. And Matic, by the way, is moving to another model, which I'd say they're building towards a similar vision to scale with the switch to Polygon. But if you look at this other category here, this is where it's one side chain. And even the Moonbeam side chain from Polkadot is one side chain. It's one set of nodes that run one blockchain that's a shared resource. Okay. And these are issues in a lot of ways, potentially, because people say, hey, well, if it's one fixed set of operators and there's not that many, it's easier for them to collude and steal money. And so you can also try to tack on things to like a plasma operator or a roll up or a different feature with a computer to be kind of a middleman authority to make sure that if the people that run these nodes are bad, the money can't be stolen. Then you look at something like scale, which is a, you know, it's a set of nodes. It's kind of like the first category or the second category I talked about. It's a separate blockchain, but it's actually run by the Ethereum mainnet. So the Ethereum network says, hey, like, let's say you wanted to come and run a game or a DeFi application. The Ethereum mainnet says, these 16 nodes out of this big pool of nodes will go work for you this month. And then at the end of the month, these seven are going to switch and these seven are going to come and work for you. And it basically keeps a big pool of resources and it moves them in and out to ensure that these blockchains are collusion resistant or side chains. But the Ethereum mainnet is actually running and orchestrating this network. And so this vision, or I guess like picture I've spelled out, there's also a spectrum of how close is this to Ethereum? If you want to scale something on Ethereum, is it you know a roll-up operator that's like literally saying, the consensus of the mainnet is the only thing that matters and we're going to use a computer to try to fact check everything or something like scale that, hey, it's a separate blockchain, but it's actually run by the Ethereum mainnet or something entirely separate, like another layer one, and you're just building a bridge. So that's one model of looking at these things. The other model I'd say that's a category is like, how are blockchains leveraged? And there's app specific blockchains where they have these structures and you see scale. And I think Avalanche and Polkadot and Cosmos and Matic moving over with the Polygon vision. And this is all these app-specific blockchains where you have a big pool of resources and you're able to kind of splinter off and chart out these smaller blockchains and try to give pooled security and, and speed and efficiency and effectiveness to each of the kind of subgroups or sub-blockchains in the bigger pool. And that's another kind of broader category. But And by the way, if you look at the architecture of scale and a lot of these others, like, you know, hey, we could easily implement a roll-up or a ZK solution. We're just not doing it now because we feel, frankly, it's not needed. We believe in the way the validator community and business is growing. And I can get into deeper into that. But I think, you know, eventually in use cases, having like ZK in particular integrated could add value. But for right now, we feel pretty good about the way the industry is moving with the validator market, that that's not required. So let me try to summarize what I try to understand about scale is yeah. sort of like it is a side chain of Ethereum where there's a bunch of nodes running on scale. And these nodes are sort of like, let's say like 50 nodes running and there are multiple side chains on scale. And out of these nodes, the operators will switch in and out every month or so, so that to keep them from being inconsistent or trying to cheat or something like that from the network, right? And scale to a large extent is actually quite similar to the Polygon by network. And that's sort of like where we should probably do a side-by-side -side comparison if that's the right way to look at it. Yeah. Or to like, you know, a Polkadot, I'd say 
But scale, by the way, I think, you know, Matic, I think it's a great sign. I really like their team. It's a good sign to see that they're shifting to this vision. This has been our vision since 2017. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you know, you see other projects like Polkadot have a similar model. And I actually, I've been trying not to use the word sidechain too for scale, because I think sidechains carry a lot of negative baggage historically, because people think, oh, a sidechain's not secure. It's just a small blockchain that connects to a big blockchain and collusion is pretty easy, easily takes place. So I think of the scale network more as elastic blockchains. And these elastic blockchains can pair up to the Ethereum mainnet and they're application specific. So every game gets its own blockchain, every DeFi application, every Web3 application. And there's this big pool of resources that uh, are being pulled from to create these smaller chains that could be called a a side chain, but Mm -hmm. side chains are, you know, need more modifiers to be accurate. So you are saying that like there is one major scale elastic chain, one large scale chain, and each scale chain will have its own small application specific side chain connected to this main scale chain, which is then connected to Ethereum chain. Is that kind of a right Um, way? you You know what I would say is, I'd say there's one major pool of scale compute resource. So every single computer in scale is divided up, or node is divided up into a bunch of smaller computers, okay? Each one could be on 128 different scale chains. And so there's the scale compute resource pool. It's not a blockchain. It's just a, basically, frankly, a bunch of compute power in these containers, these little buckets, right, that can be shifted together to create a scale chain. And those scale chains, you could call them side chains, but I, I've been more calling them elastic blockchains, but they perform a lot of the functionality of a side chain in that they can connect to Ethereum and run incredibly fast. Mm. The other thing is the scale chains, once connected, you don't pay gas. So the developer buys the resource from the pool. They buy, let's say there's like a hundred increments and I'm using kind of pretend numbers and each scale chain is one increment. They can like buy one increment and they pay for that over a period of time in scale tokens. Mm. And then those tokens end up being paid to the people that run the computers later. And then they don't need to pay, the users don't have to pay for per transaction. The developer or a community can fund a smart contract that pays for the resource from the bigger pool of compute resource. Mm-hmm. So I guess my next question is like, who are like the sort of like target market for the scale chain, right? Like, are you guys going after game developers or people building DEXs or NFTs, for example? Like, who do you see would be like the main target users for this scale scalability solution? Yeah, what I would say would be anyone who's building on Ethereum and has a need for very fast transactions and low fees. And so if you're building something on Ethereum and there's like not many transactions and the cost is really high, then it's not as big of a need. DeFi, gaming, Web3 applications, all of these can in just a few lines of code port over to the scale network, okay? And then run really, really fast. And the block times right now, I think they're getting about three blocks per second. And, you know, if you look at these other chains, they're more like five seconds per block. And so the scale chain's really fast and you're not paying for each transaction. So if all the users don't have to pay, the developer or a community can fund and pay for the chain and 
it ends up being one of the most desirable things right now. And also the block sizes and scale are dramatically larger. I think it's about three times as much as what you can do on the Ethereum mainnet. So if you have a lot of computation that needs to happen in Solidity, you can just do a lot more with each transaction, which is really powerful for DeFi and gaming in particular right now, because the way they're leveraging smart contracts is pretty sophisticated. And right now when you're coding in Solidity, you have to, it's almost like coding in, I don't know if anyone listening has ever used one of those old old calculators where you could actually code on the calculator. <laughs> just hardly any compute space. So you have to be really, really specific about what your code and Solidity is kind of similar. And on scale there, you can just do more within each transaction and actually do just do more on the blockchain. Yeah. That's interesting. Is scale really live or when is it expected to sort of go live? Yeah. So there's four phases to the network launching. And so the network went live on October 1st. There were 153 nodes launched run by 46 different validator orgs and 4,000 people staking from 90 different countries. And that was the kind of real launch of the network because that's when it became fully decentralized. There were a couple kind of pre-stages before then. And then the token actually went liquid on December 1st after the network had been running for two months to really prove the utility of the token and that it's, hey, this is a real piece of software. It's a real network. It's decentralized. And so we went through that process. And now there's another upgrade coming. And so you can use scale chains today, but the bridge between the Ethereum mainnet and scale just went through an upgrade and an audit. And so the community has been waiting for the audit to be complete and the upgrade to get pushed. And when that next phase happens, you're going to start seeing the you know, DeFi applications and gaming applications really start leveraging scale because they'll be able to move back and forth with the mainnet. So it is a live network, but these networks are upgradable and the smart contracts are upgradable that essentially run the network. And so we're pretty excited. That's targeted for this month. And, you know, it's coming out very soon. And we'll have a demo that we'll be sharing of the latest upgrade in the next few days that I'm pretty excited about. Any devs have announced that they'll be using Scale so far or anyone that you can let us know so far? Yeah, yeah. I think there's 135 dApps that have signed up in the Scale Innovator program. And that means they're signing up, they're testing, they're using Scale. And what we've been doing over the last month is having a use case marathon. And so these apps, they're going live saying, hey, we're going on scale as soon as the smart contract upgrade is up and running, we're excited. And what we've wanted to do is show the different use cases. So there's some really exciting applications. I'd recommend going to the scale website and you can see all of these. There's a blog post written about each one and about each use case. And just, yeah, I think we're really excited about it. And Hey, it's a big honor to be able to support these projects and companies and organizations. And we're just, I think, excited to help them start cutting their gas fees and growing their user base. Yeah, I mean, the gas fee is such a big problem. I've been talking about this for a long time on my Twitter. Like for most people paying, I mean, when gas was over 100 gui, like paying $30 just for a simple ERC20 transaction. That's not sustainable, right? Like making <laughs> paying like $100 for a swap on Unison. No one's going to do that. Only old school Ethereum guys, I mean, like you and me who've been around since like forever, like, you know, if you're making like $5,000 swap, for example, you don't mind paying $100 in transaction fee, but yeah. you're making like a $50 swap. Like, there's no way you're going to pay $100. Yeah, you're just not going to do it. And, and I think 
you know, we're seeing the community is and users of crypto are speaking up and kind of saying, hey, like we're willing to use other solutions yeah. because I mean, the other day I just had to swap out. I had to get some ETH for a transaction. And so I was trying to move out, I think like 300 of USDC into ETH mm. and it cost me a hundred bucks in gas fees. So I just didn't do it. Yeah. That just wasn't worth it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to go to a centralized exchange and do this. Right. Even then, it costs you like $50 or like $30 to send it out. <laughs> I know. It's just not good. And, you know, and yeah, I think we'll probably talk about, maybe talk about this later, but I think users are showing us that their pocketbooks speak louder than their religions when it comes to decentralization sometimes. Yeah, yeah it's true. I mean, I have some of these like DAS tokens and DAS used to mean like, less than five dollars worth of tokens but does these days mean like anything less than a hundred dollars of tokens on your <laughs> ethereum wallet like it's just no longer feasible to convert them out into eve anymore because it just costs so much money but yeah you're right in the sense that i think we have seen the past few weeks that users don't really care which chain they're on we've seen binance smart chain Huobi eco chain so significant growth on their own layer one chain. Basically, it's an Ethereum fork, but there's less people using it. So obviously, gas fees are lower. What's kind of your take on the growth of this, like BSC, Huobi Eco Chain, and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I'm excited about it. I think it's a positive thing. And, you know, I think one of the sad things is, hey, I think there's this religion around how to scale Ethereum. And that's why it's like, no, we cannot use another blockchain. We can't use any other consensus. And, you know, it's kind of weird because if you say, hey, I only want to use a rollup or a plasma, you know, and that has to run in a centralized fashion, like why is Binance any worse, right? And Binance is a big company. They're not going to steal your money, right? And so it actually, I also think that there's going to be use cases for every single, for a lot of the categories of the things we're talking about, but where scale likes to sit is, it's a decentralized network that can scale Ethereum, but you know what? Consensus happens on that network. It's not using you know, a roll-up technique. It's using validators that have to, two-thirds of them have to be malicious to steal any money and anything less than that. And, and there's also other protections built in. It's just really unlikely that we're going to see validators in this type of market go malicious and steal money because these are the same validators that have so much money that they run on Polkadot and ETH2 and all these other places, you know, if they steal from one place, they're going to lose their business everywhere. Okay. It's just not very likely considering that the top 50 validators probably have 95% of the market share across all proof of stake platforms. So one, I think there will be a great need for decentralization, especially as DeFi grows. And I mean, you know what? If Bitcoin was run by a company, it would be shut down by now, okay? And, but there are going to be many use cases where you're just like, listen, I just want to log in as address, interact with a smart contract, and trade one currency for another. And I think Binance is, you know, people are saying, that's good enough for me. The issue is, as regulation grows, when you're trading in an exchange as a person who lives in a country you have requirements to do KYC AML. And that's where, you know, these things will fail to scale. It won't be from a technology perspective. And it'll be the same reason why, you know, people can't use certain exchanges in certain countries because there's regulations. And if you do have centralized exchanges running decentralized exchanges, that's great as long as what they're doing is actually decentralized. And if it's not, you know, they're going to run into issues and headwind and their users will. But right now, 
let me tell you, it's adding a lot of value to the industry because people are getting priced out of swapping in and out of tokens. Like you said, a dust token is $500 right now, you know, on Uniswap, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I hear a point about, interesting point that you brought out about AMA or KYC on these decentralized chains. So, I mean, it almost feels that, I mean, Binance.com is not available for US users, but the Binance smart chain is available to US users. So to a large extent, kind of like I've been talking to some of my friends as well. It seems that BSC is sort of like a wrapper or an API around the Binance.com ecosystem. And it's now available to US users, which sort of like skirts around the regulation that forces them to ban Binance to US users in the first place. But it's kind of weird because BSC is sort of like, they say it's decentralized, but really like, I don't know, 20 validators or so on BSC is really controlled by Binance and their friends. So would you say that the liability kind of like falls on the BSC node operators right now? Yeah, what, what I'd say is they just launched. So I think I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to predict law, but the reason why people are decentralized, the reason why Uniswap is effective and not illegal is because it's actually decentralized. It's a bunch of smart contracts and it's not run by, like you said, a company and some trusted friends. And I think those are the issues that come with being centralized is you're going to have the same requirements you do if you are running a centralized exchange. So we're going to perhaps see some regulatory scrutiny, but regulators work slowly. I think, you know, these things just came up. If there are issues, we won't find out for probably six months, right? <laughs> six, six years, maybe. I mean, like, look at XRP. Like, I only got a securities letter after how many years? Like, they've been doing this since like 2013 or so. And finally, in 2020, they received a letter and calling them a security. But that's like so long, right? right? Yeah, but I think it's going to be faster. I think there's been very clear communication flowing from regulatory authorities, then through lawyers, and then to you know, people working on decentralized networks. And, you know, you have to be decentralized or you need to be ready to, and that means you have to give up power and control and let software be in charge and let upgrades be managed in a decentralized manner and, you know, let smart contracts be in charge and then make sure people running nodes are, you know, people that are just people from the community, not people that work at your company or your company, right? And if you do those things and you get the benefits of being decentralized, well, you know, giving up a lot of control of the community, which ends up actually being a good thing. <laughs> Counterintuitively, it ends up actually giving you more growth. But if you want to control things, I think it's prudent to then be ready for the implications that come with that, right? Just my yeah. thoughts. <laughs> yeah, cool. So recently, like, if you look at the past week or so, like the ETH guest was kind of hovering around more than 150. At one point, like, I don't know, a thousand Gui, which is kind of crazy. But now it's kind of like around a hundred Gui or less recently. Nick Chong of Parify kept uh, recently suggested that this was probably because Vitalik proposed the removal of gas refund tied to self-destruct on the Ethereum London upgrade. So this has sort of lowered demand for gas, especially among the gas tokens, because it kind of make those gas tokens useless. Do you think this explains the declining gas prices recently or that kind of no correlation with it or not so sure if you've kind of seen this yet? Yeah, you know what? So I can't give you a good enough answer on that. But what I'll say is I know that there's a lot of effort within the leadership of Ethereum to say, what can we do right now to optimize? And unfortunately, that's balanced with the fact that the network itself only has a certain amount of resourcing and load and capabilities. And so if you make it really cheap to use, it's just going to make the state logs just massive, right? It just costs money to run 
an Ethereum node. And so the costs kind of have to, you know, you have to kind of take the supply into consideration as it relates to pricing for demand, which is one of the hard parts from the conversations I've had with people at the Ethereum Foundation and my understanding. So I do think, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to, I think that's worth doing more research on. But um, also, I'm curious to see what's happening. I'd love to run some user numbers too, because we're seeing incredible growth like Binance Smart Chain launch and all these other chains are launching. Like you can swap tokens and you couldn't do it before. I'm sure someone's going to launch the second they can on scale. There'll be probably a multiple of these launched that are kind of, you know, Uniswap, Sushi Swap clones. And you're just going to, you know, when you can interact in an environment with the same tokens and the same wallets, but without gas fees, there's a lot of advantages. And, but I do think, yeah, I think it's interesting. It's worth more research, but it has been an improvement. Yeah. I mean, over here at CoinGecko, we're seeing huge growth in like AMMs launching on multiple different chains. So like the past couple of weeks, we've just been super busy adding all those AMMs on Binance Smart Chain. Mm-hmm. So PancakeSwap, BakerySwap, JoeSwap, a bunch of other swaps and all. And then we're seeing the same old Heco, but there's only one major one there, MDEX. We recently integrated QuickSwap on the Matic network. So I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure like I think we're kind of entering a world where there will be multiple layer one chains or layer two side chains, if you may, and then they all have their own AMMs, I guess, which kind of like makes things very fragmented for the users as well. I mean, if you're kind of on the Matic QuickSwap chain, you can't really interact with like the BSC PancakeSwap coins and all. So like, I don't know, at some points, there will probably be some sort of interoperability system for you to kind of move between the various layer one, layer two solutions and kind of swap your tokens on these different chains. Would you kind of agree with that or what's the thoughts on that? You know, I've been thinking about it lately is like similar, similar. And like the analogy that I've been using is it's almost like the physical world we all live in, right? Like in your neighborhood, there's a grocery store, there might be a car dealership somewhere near there's like a gas station and a grocery store. There's these pieces of infrastructure that support a certain amount of demand. And right now we're seeing each network pop up and then someone's there like, hey, here's my AMM for this network. Yeah. And there's a lot of money to be made in the short term by going like servicing these communities where they are. But what I think is going to happen is there's a certain point where if in the physical world, like the neighborhood you lived in had two huge grocery stores instead of one, one might go out of business, right? <laughs> and we might see some consolidation. And so there'll be a growth period. And this happens in these types of markets every time. It's like since the 90s tech boom. And you're going to see a consolidation phase again. But I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think there's definitely a lot of growth because the market size of people that use crypto is still so small, right? And people are creating these tribes to say like, oh, come over here, come over here. But One thing that's true is if you have something that's ETH compatible, the barrier to entry to set something up. So when someone next month, when like the near future, all of a sudden scale and the next upgrade for interchain messaging goes for scale, there'll be somebody there immediately to just with probably very little effort, get pancake swap, sushi swap, quick swap equivalent going because they know that there's a massive community of token holders there. There's incredible performance, low fees. And what they're trying to do is win and beat all the other ones. But in the process, um, it's just going to, you know, there's like already an established community there with little effort to get that business up and running. And they'll have great performance and great benefits compared to other areas, right? So 
it will be something that will be really interesting to watch. And I think CoinGecko, you're in a really interesting viewpoint now. And I, I love what, by the way, I love, I'm so impressed with your business and how you've just like, you know, become a force and a center point of crypto. I think you're in an interesting position to see this grow and evolve. Yeah, yeah. I think kind of like a town planner point of view. And I really like your analogy. I guess you can think of it like each of this chain, like BSC, it's kind of like some settlers go to a new town and then like clay out. Okay. And then they get people to come to their town and live there. And they're like, okay, now that we have all these guys living here, we need like amenities. We need a grocery store. We need a car repair workshop and all these different things. So you have the pancake shop will show up first, the AMFs, and then you have the maker equivalent. And then you have the lending and borrowing protocols. You have the U aggregators and then kind of everyone's kind of built up and then they compete against each other. And then some guys going to be the biggest player. And then some guys like Bobby is creating his own town, like Bobby city. And, and as you say, like kind of like a, mayor looking at all these things going around these various towns and sort of like seeing how this works out. It's a very interesting analogy, I would say. <laughs> yeah. You know, crypto is, uh, it's in a really interesting growth stage now. And I think all the people working in the space and interested and who are enthusiasts, like it's really, I think, a great time to be here because there's still so much knowledge asymmetry. If you don't understand and follow these projects and know about AMMs, know about lending protocols, know about the dynamics of DeFi or how to interact with games or NFTs, right? Even we're seeing NFTs, boom, like it's not easy stuff, but when you get it, you kind of have a head start on the rest of the world because they're going to get it at some point. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I keep telling all my, the new guys that join us at CoinGecko. I mean, you are in the right industry, right place, right time. There's so many opportunities to make like 10X return or whatever amount of insane returns that you want. And the reason why all these crazy returns are available in this industry at this point in time is because of information asymmetry. You know something, or at least you spend a lot of time researching about something that the world hasn't found out yet. And if you make the right bets and hold on long enough with the right conviction, you will see these returns because eventually the world's going to catch on and everyone's going to kind of buy those tokens or whatever it is and that price is going to move up. So I definitely agree that there's so much information asymmetry. And this is getting harder and harder because this pace of development is just growing at such an exponential rate at all directions. Like there's so much developments going around in like the scalability section, like scale, multi polygon, all these different things. There's all these things going around with the BSC ecosystem, with the 4B ecosystem, with the Ethereum ecosystem and, and all these various sectors as well, right? So you have the fixed interest rate protocols, the option protocol, DeFi protocol, all kinds of protocols that kind of hard for one person to really kind of get a grasp or a deep understanding of every development going around all these different parts of crypto. So. Yeah. You know, the, the other piece of this that's cool is, you know, typically information asymmetry and using it for business purposes, there's like regulatory issues with that. But there's nothing, there's no access asymmetry. This is all open source. You can read about every single project. Everything's open. DeFi is launching with fair launch. Anybody can kind of get in there and participate. There's no closed doors. And so the harder you work and the more you learn, the greater your information asymmetry grows on people who don't do that, which is nice because in the centralized world, there's access asymmetry where you need to know the right people. You need to, you know, have gone to the right schools or get access to the right professional wealth advisor. And in crypto, it's like everybody can support themselves. And the harder you work and the more you get in there, regardless of who you are, or where you live, there's upside for you. Yeah, I completely agree with that point of view. Like, I mean, a lot of the innovation that took place in Wall Street is only available to accredited investors and to the right financial advisors who can put you the right guys in New York, for example. 
And like someone living in Malaysia, you may not even be accredited, for example. So there's no way you get access to all these things. I mean, if you look 20 years ago with the dot-com boom, there's so many startups that had great growth potential in Silicon Valley, but you've got to be one of the insiders in San Francisco to be able to be offered access to deal flows, right? Like there's no way. And then it takes like five years before it hits IPO. So like that's going to be tough, right? So like now in crypto, like the time to public market is just super short. And then there's incredible growth once it hits the public market as well. So yeah, there's no access asymmetry as well in crypto. So that's one of the better parts of crypto. Yeah, it's cool how global it is too because of that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of things sort of like everyone outside the US don't really get a lot of these opportunities. And crypto offers this opportunity, which... Many people outside the U.S. really appreciate it, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. All right. So let's just jump back a bit back to scale, right? And mm-hmm. kind of like last a few more questions before we wrap things up. So I guess my last couple of questions is, is scale only for Ethereum or it can be sort of be adapted for other blockchains once they sort of like clock up as well? Yeah. What I'd say is there's a real commitment to scaling the Ethereum ecosystem. It doesn't mean you can only scale tokens that are on the Ethereum mainnet. Like, so you could run Bitcoin on a scale chain. But when you're running smart contracts on scale, you're running Ethereum virtual machine and you're running anything that is interoperable with the Ethereum ecosystem. And that's one of the cool things is like, hey, if you use a scale chain, you can use Chainlink and the graph and all these other really cool tools and MetaMask and my Ether wallet and all of these great products. And that's why, you know, the reason why we're so passionate about Ethereum is that all of the building that's happening there, all the developers and the tools and the ecosystem. Now, over time, if there's a real need to, you know, run smart contracts from another network on the scale chains and you know, it's open source and community run. The community could, you know, say like, let's build support for that. And somebody could submit a pull request or the core team could, and that could happen. But the short term, you could think about it as all like the inner workings are Ethereum, but outside things, somebody could say, hey, I want to clone Bitcoin into this or some other token that's not part of the Ethereum ecosystem. And as long as you can build a bridge into the scale network, then you can access the Ethereum ecosystem from a developer view, but leverage tokens in an integrated manner that aren't from that world. Cool. And what do we say would be like the use case of the scale token that went live on the 1st of December? Yeah, so there's three main use cases. So one is you pay for a scale chain. So if you want a scale chain, you have to pay a certain amount of scale tokens. That price is dependent on the load of the network. There's just elasticity curve based off of... uh, network load. And if the network's really overloaded with dApps and it costs a lot more, it incentivizes more people to set up nodes. If the price of the token's really expensive, more people set up nodes to get the fees from the chains and also this inflation that happens. And so that's one, I guess, mechanic of the token. The other one is staking. So anybody can stake the token. And what you're doing, you're putting the token at risk and the validator operator, if they go malicious, then you know they can lose your token if they try to steal from a DAP, right? That's one is staking it. The other one is governance. And so very soon there'll be on-chain voting and you could vote to change, you know, like make the fees lower to run a scale chain or someone might have a proposal to make the quantity of tokens needed lower to run a node in the scale network. And that's the other way, or I guess tool and utility of the scale token. Those are the three main things. 
Cool. Very interesting. Yeah. And I guess I, I kind of run out of all my questions that I wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, any questions that I should ask that I haven't really already asked yet? Anything that you want to say? I think what I would say is, you know, I think we're early in this battle of pioneering towns, like we you talked to, you know, the analogy. And I think we're going to see a lot of successful ones, but I think, and there's a lot of really smart people building in the space, but at the end of the day, I think users will pick the winners. And I think we're going to see Web3 and user-owned economy applications just boom in the next year. We're going to see so much growth happen on the application side. And right now, DeFi is really flourishing and we're seeing NFTs flourish and we're seeing gaming, like, you know, get a strong start. But I think we're going to see more come onto the blockchain and at the scale, you know, hey, we all, from an incentive perspective, I worked on this for three years, as did a lot of people, and we didn't even start vesting. The first day of vesting was October 1st when the network launched for a four-year vesting schedule. So we're like locked and ready for a long battle or a long journey (laughs) trying to win market share. And yeah, I'm just excited about it. And I think a lot of other teams too have similar dynamics, but the ones that get users will win. And it's kind of a cool time right now because there's a lot of promising teams and it'll just be really interesting, I think, to see the way it plays out. And you know, we'll be working hard to try to win as much market share as possible, but also, you know, I just appreciate the competition too, because I think the more and more smart people building, it just raises the whole industry. Yeah. I mean, I always tell people that this industry is probably the industry that has like some of the smartest brains around and like so many smart brains, like IQ 200 guys working in this thing that you just feel inadequate talking to all these guys. But it's great. I mean, you know, you're in the right industry when you're surrounded with like super smart guys. And yeah, I mean, this scaling solution thing is so many scalability solutions. At the end of the day, you're right. The users will decide. It feels very fragmented, the space right now. So many different solutions. We don't know who will emerge as the winner yet. So yeah, I really wish you the best of luck. Hopefully you guys can capture sufficient market share and people will start using scale. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, there's a ton of great momentum and it's just exciting to see so many people, you know, see some a decentralized effort come together. There's thousands of people that work on the scale network. And I think a lot of people now are starting to find out about it, even though we've been working at it for a really long time. So, but hey, thanks. Really appreciate you, you know, digging deep and asking these questions. It's always fun for me to be able to talk about scale and the industry as a whole. Yeah. Thanks a lot for taking the time to explain to us. I really appreciate it. All right. That wraps up the show. Thank you for listening to the CoinGecko podcast with Bobby. If you like our show and want to know more, check out podcast.coingecko.com or please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any feedback, do drop us an email at hello at coingecko.com. Join us for more next week. See ya. This podcast is provided as part of the overall information on cryptocurrency contained on our website, is for your general information only, and does not howsoever constitute any endorsement, financial or investment advice, nor any solicitation or offer of securities or other financial instruments. CoinGecko and the podcast presenter makes no warranties, implied or expressed, of any kind in relation to this podcast, including, without limitation, the accuracy and updatedness of its content. All opinions and recommendations there in the podcast are based on the personal opinion of the presenter. Please conduct your own research and procure professional advice should you, at your own risk, decide to howsoever invest or trade in relation to the content contained in the podcast.